Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 29. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the NIV translation. This is the word of the Lord. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, lest by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And he will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Gospel of our Lord. Please add, pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be found acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Dick Lucas is now 97 years old, but for many years he was the rector of St. Helen's Bishopsgate, an Anglican church right in the heart of the financial district in London. And of all the people I heard preach and teach on preaching while I lived in the UK and Ireland, uh, Lucas was one of the ones from whom I probably learned the most. And one of my favorite stories that Dick Lucas told concerned an essay that he had read in which the author uh, wrote this, I'd love to believe in God. I really would, but it is impossible. I could believe in God if someone would just give me a watertight argument, a watertight proof without a single hole one from which there's no escaping, then I could believe, end quote. And Dick Lucas's response to that was this. He said, I don't think God has provided us with a watertight argument, though I know some would disagree with me. What God has provided you and me with is a watertight person with no holes in him. There's no escaping him. Jesus Christ is the watertight person against whom in the end there can be no argument. Today, I'd like to invite you to consider with me the authoritative teaching of this watertight person called Jesus. And that might sound overly ambitious to many of you. In fact, if you've ever seen or 
uh, heard about one of those Bibles that puts all the words of Jesus in red, well, that's essentially all that we've got to cover today. That's all the teaching of Jesus. By one calculation, even by removing the duplicate sayings of Jesus in the Gospels, that's 31,426 words. But you'll be glad to know that we're going to narrow our focus a little bit from that this morning to look just at the Sermon on the Mount, and not even the entire Sermon on the Mount, but just the ending of it that I, I read a few moments ago. Part of the reason for us looking at this part of uh, the gospel in terms of an example of Jesus' authoritative preaching is because of what the gospel writer tells us was the reaction of the crowds when Jesus came to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me read those words again, Matthew 7, 28 to 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Matthew tells us that the audience that day was blown away by Jesus' teaching, and specifically blown away because of the authoritative nature of Jesus' teaching. Their regular diet of preaching came from the scribes to whom they would listen in the synagogue on the Sabbath. These were men who, as one person put it, were in bondage to quotation marks. They loved to just quote their rabbinic authorities as they spoke. Well, they would say, Rabbi Hillel says this, but on the other hand, Rabbi Gamaliel says this, and then there is the testimony of Rabbi Eliezer. It was all confusing. It was all rather secondhand and probably quite boring, but not so with Jesus. The crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. So, what we're going to look at this morning is the conclusion of this sermon, what some people have called the greatest sermon ever preached, in order to see three things about Jesus' authoritative teaching, the authoritative teaching of this watertight person. First of all, the breadth of Jesus' teaching. Secondly, the depth of his teaching. And thirdly, the benevolence of his authority. The breadth of his teaching, the depth of his teaching, and the benevolence of his authority. So let's start with the, the breadth of Jesus' teaching. Let me uh, read to you again verses 13 to 14. Uh, which were at the start of our passage today. And Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus here speaks of two roads, two ways, and he says one of these ways leads to life, and one of these roads leads to destruction. Jesus here is using categories that I'm guessing are of interest to all of us, whether you would consider yourself a Christian this morning or, or not, because no one here, my guess is, wants to be on the road that leads to destruction. Now, we all want to be, we desire to be on the road that leads to life. So, Jesus here is really addressing one of the most fundamental questions of human beings, which is, how do I find the path that leads to a true and authentic life? How do I find the satisfaction the joy, the flourishing, which I have the sense I was made for. And if you think that's a, a very modern question, it actually is not. It's as old as human thinking itself. And through history, we've many examples of thoughtful philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, Seneca, just to name a few from the Western tradition, who have asked such questions. And in the Gospels, we discover that Jesus jumps into the fray with this, and he addresses much the same issue as all these ancient philosophers, Jesus presents his teaching as a way of life, as a philosophy of life that leads to life. 
Now, I have to confess that perhaps like many of you, I hadn't really thought of Jesus' authoritative teaching in terms of a philosophy of life that leads to life until recently I read a book by the New Testament scholar Jonathan Pennington entitled, Jesus the Great Philosopher. Now, for some of us, perhaps to call Jesus a philosopher sort of sullies his reputation because we don't have a particularly high view of philosophy or philosophers. Along those lines, Pennington mentions in his book uh, the comedian Steve Martin in one of his 1970s stand-up routines reflecting on his college experience and what he called the intellectual thing. In the routine, Martin observes that people forget most of what they learned while they were in school. For example, he says geology doesn't stick because it's all facts and figures. But he says philosophy is different. When you study philosophy in college, you remember just enough to screw you up for the rest of your life. But here's the thing. Philosophy historically was not intended to screw up your life. It was actually, in the ancient world, the scaffolding, the, the very guide by which men and women sought to find true happiness and flourishing. It provided the vision for the good life. And consequently, it shouldn't surprise us that throughout the ancient church, and indeed all the way up through the modern times, Christians have thought about their faith as not just religion, but as a philosophy of life. Right after World War I, some European archaeologists stumbled upon the ancient city of Dura Europus, uh, located in modern-day Syria, right on the Euphrates River. And amongst other discoveries there, they, they found a house church frozen in time from the second century A.D., the walls of that church building were preserved, and on them were painted images of Jesus used as teaching tools. So there were depictions there of Jesus as the great shepherd, or the good shepherd, and as the great physician, and as Jesus as the great philosopher. That even in all the pictures of Jesus healing and teaching and performing miracles, he's wearing the telltale philosopher's robes. He's standing in the posture of a philosophy teacher. He's even portrayed with the haircut that was associated with philosophers back then. Now, you might ask, well, what's, what, why is it important to try to make the case that Jesus framed his teaching as a philosophy of life? Well, Jonathan Pennington suggests in, the, in that book that the church has really been diminished as a result of us losing this philosophy category or language to think about our faith. He writes that in losing this category, our, our Christian faith often is disconnected from so many aspects of our human lives, that Christianity becomes merely a religion. It's reduced to sort of the vertical dimensions of our lives, and we fail to recognize the breadth of Jesus' teaching as a philosophy of life, which is intended to permeate every nook and cranny of our, of our lives, issues such as relationships and money and justice and our, our work and our time and so on. And when we reduce Christianity like that, we end up looking to other sources, sort of alternative gurus, if you will, to give us the wisdom that we crave. And it's not as if you can't find any wisdom amongst these other sources from the likes of Jordan Peterson or Mary Kondo or whoever else you would count on the bench of your influences. You can, of course. But if those people tend to be the people you're referencing, or at a party, those are the people your friends know you're going to be quoting, or if you spend time reflecting, thinking, WWJD, what would Jordan do? Then it's probably a, a bit of a red flag 
that you're not turning to Jesus' teaching and thinking about His, His teaching as this broad philosophy of life impacting every decision, every relationship, every thought, every word, every deed. But let's circle back to these words again from Jesus in verses 13 to 14. Let me read them again. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. When you think about this, the way that Jesus describes these ways, these roads, is somewhat surprising, isn't it? The gate that leads to life, Jesus says, is narrow. That's not normally in our culture considered a terribly positive word. If I described someone as narrow or narrow-minded, you would not think that I'm paying them a compliment. And then in contrast, Jesus says that the road that leads to destruction is broad. There's a word that we would normally consider positively. If I describe someone as broad-minded, you would say, well, there's someone that might be pleasant to spend some time around. So that Jesus here takes these words, and he, he takes the expected usage of both of these words, and He turns them upside down. The thing that looks very broad leads into suffocatingly deadly narrowness. And the thing that looks narrow, He says, leads to astonishing vastness and breadth and freedom. Those of you who might be Doctor Who fans, this narrow way reflects the TARDIS phenomenon. If you're not familiar with the British TV character Doctor Who, he or now she would go through the, the narrow door of this TARDIS, which was really just a glorified phone booth, and inside the TARDIS it's just massive, it's vast. And so here Jesus is saying that the alternatives to His teaching, while they may look so wide and open and spacious and affirming, on the outside, when you get on the inside, they are suffocatingly narrow. And then in contrast, the gospel on the outside with its exclusive claims about Jesus, who He is, what He's come to do, or His call in your life, it can all look very, very narrow. But when you come inside, you discover that it's unbelievably spacious, that it's the place of flourishing and of life. So there is this breadth to Jesus' teaching as it entails this entire philosophy of life that is intended to lead to life. But secondly, there's a breadth to Jesus', depth to Jesus' teaching as well. A little while ago, Tara and I were watching a TV uh, drama series that a friend had recommended to us. And, but to be honest, after the first episode, we weren't too sure whether we really wanted to stick with it. It wasn't that it was in Norwegian with subtitles, but we were okay with that. We just found that it was really hard work to work out who was who, and, and it seemed to just demand an awful lot of the viewer to kind of track what was going on in, in the story. But we decided we would persevere, and we watched the second episode, only for us to realize that I had inadvertently clicked on the wrong icon on the screen, and we had watched the final episode of the series, episode eight of the series. So we went back, we watched the first episode, and lo and behold, you know, if you watch the first episode, then all the way through the eighth, it makes an awful lot more sense. But sometimes getting a peek of what the conclusion is in something can actually be quite instructive, maybe not with drama, maybe not with a work of fiction, but with nonfiction, having an idea of the conclusion gives you a better sense of the arc of the thesis, of the general argument of what's going on. And that's because a good conclusion is going to tell you what was in the bulk of the book, what the book was all about. If it's in the conclusion, then it's in the body of the book. 
And sermons tend to work in a similar way, that the conclusion will summarize what has been said in the, in the material in the sermon beforehand. But Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, if you've ever read it, covers an awful lot of territory. But as with any good sermon, Jesus here in the conclusion is summing up everything that he's been saying up to that point. And he does so, as we heard earlier, by these, these series of, of contrasting images. So as we've seen, there are two ways. And then he follows that up with a contrast of two trees, one that bears good fruit, one that bears bad fruit. And then he follows that up with two houses, one that's built on the firm foundation of rock, one that's built on the sand. But with each of these pictures, Jesus is challenging his listeners to discern which way, which tree, which house reflects their particular situation. So think about this with me for a moment. If Jesus is talking in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount about two ways, then we should be able to see those two ways reflected in the body of the sermon, right? So in light of what's preceded in the Sermon on the Mount, what would we say those two ways are? Well, many people say, well, that's a no-brainer, you know. Once you get into the category of religion, they all work the same way. They're contrasting two ways. They work by differentiating the good people from the bad people the nice people from the nasty people, the religious people from the irreligious people. So the common thinking goes, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, that's how Jesus is operating here as well. He must be affirming that first type of person and then condemning the second kind of person. So those must be generally the two ways that Jesus is contrasting here, the good versus the bad, the religious versus the irreligious, the righteous versus the unrighteous. But there's a problem with that interpretation because when you go back into the body of the Sermon on the Mount and you look at the contrast Jesus is making, it's not actually as is often assumed because Jesus in this body is not teaching here that on the one hand are the religious people and on the other hand are the irreligious people, that on the one hand are the good people in this world and the other hand are the bad people in this world. And perhaps the clearest example of this comes in the middle chapter of the Sermon on the Mount Matthew chapter 6, right before Jesus is teaching on the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is teaching about prayer and giving and fasting in general. And when you look at that, you see that Jesus doesn't say, well, let me tell you, the good people of the world, they're the people who pray, and the bad people in the world, they're the people who don't pray. No, he says to the, his listeners, you know, some of you pray like this, but I want you to pray like that. And then he goes on to giving, financial giving. He, and he doesn't say, you know, the good people of the world, they're the people who give money, and the bad people of the world, they're the, they're the, the mean, un uncharitable people who don't give. No, he says, some of you give like this, but I want you to give like that. So that it's not as we think. Both actually look to be doing good things in these situations. It's not a case of one being good and one being bad. On the surface, they're all doing the same things. They're doing good things. But Jesus says at the end, you know, yeah, I was talking about prayer, giving, uh, spiritual disciplines. They all look good, but actually one of those ways that I was describing is actually toxic. One of these ways reeks like rotten fruit. One of these approaches to life is going to come crashing down. One of these paths leads to destruction. And what you discover is that the big surprise in the Sermon on the Mount is that people on the narrow way, and people on the broad way actually are doing the same things. They're doing the same things. 
They're praying, they're giving, they're fasting. So then the question is, okay, well, what, is dis- what distinguishes these two ways? This is pretty important because one way leads to life, one leads to destruction. Well, here's what distinguishes the two ways. The two groups do these things for completely different reasons. The contrast that Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount is a contrast to do with the posture of the heart. It's all about our motivations. You see this teaching all the way through the Gospels with Jesus, this heart depth to his teaching. I mean, think about it this way. Here we all are this morning filling the pews in this building, and from a certain perspective, you know, we're, we're looking pretty good. In fact, as I look out on you, you do look marvelous this morning. Well done. Uh, but, but for some of us, thinking about this, you know, we think, well, just by the fact of me being here in church, I mean, that's got to have me on the way that leads to life, Right? tree-bearing fruit, house that's on the firm foundation. And Jesus comes and says, wait a minute, not so fast. He says, I'm actually more interested in the reason that you're here today than the fact that you're here. I'm more interested in your motivations for everything that you do than the actual thing provided it's not in and of itself sinful. So the question then becomes, okay, what's the posture of my heart for everything that I do? Not just for being in church on a Sunday morning, but everything I do. What's your reason for being a good parent or a a good spouse? What's your motivation for being a a loyal employee or a good friend, a successful entrepreneur, a creative artist? If If it's all about accolades and recognition and praise for you from others, or is it first and foremost because it's done before an audience of one. It's done before God. You want to bring honor and praise to Him before all else. If it's really all about you, if your general MO is all about your reputation, Jesus says, you're actually on the broad road that leads to destruction. Your fruit stinks. Your house is about to collapse. You, you may be doing all the right things, all the things that your friends are doing. You're in church on Sunday, but you're not the right kind of person because your heart's all wrong. Do you see the difference? There's a path in life that uses God to get things, and there's a path in life that uses things in order to seek and to find God. Same actions often, completely different motives, because it all has to do with the heart. So you see, there is this breadth to Jesus' teaching, but there's also this depth that it penetrates, penetrates to demanding a certain posture of our hearts. So then thirdly and lastly, we come to Jesus' benevolent authority. Listen to uh, verses 24 and 26 here in Matthew 7 again. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house in the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Now, notice the intended emphasis here uh, where Jesus brings intentional focus on himself here. It's not just who, those who do my words. He says, who do these words of mine. It's somewhat subtle, but it's significant. Because in contrast to all the scribes of Jesus' day and their endless quoting of various rabbis, Jesus makes the massively audacious and scandalous claim that his words, his words are authoritative. His words need to be acted upon, and that everything in your life and my life hangs on whether we do what Jesus says or don't do what He says. He says the stability and the fruitfulness 
And the flourishing of your life depends on you doing what He says. No one in Jesus' day ever said such a thing or taught such a thing. Now, of course, Jesus would not be the first leader or the last to command obedience to His teaching or to make promises about the benefits of following His teaching. So, the question is, what would make someone choose to put into practice Jesus' teaching as opposed to the teaching of anyone else? I'm guessing that some of us here today who might not claim to be Christian at this point have read or heard through the grapevine something of Jesus' commands, and yes, we would say the word narrow would appear to be an appropriate description of those things. But the fact is He challenges all of us, whether we're Christians or, or not yet Christians. He challenges all of us in all sorts of difficult arenas of integrity, politics, sex, our work, consumption, money. And the question is, why would you ever submit yourself to those teachings which do seem strict? Well, let me suggest to you that our willingness to do the what of Jesus' teaching really depends on the who of Jesus' teaching and the why of Jesus' teaching. Let me finish up with these two things. First of all, the who. You know, Jesus, I think, understood the importance of the who of the teaching as He gave the what of the teaching, which is why, as you go through the Gospels in Jesus' teaching, no matter, no matter what the subject matter, Jesus keeps coming back. He keeps circling back to teaching about Himself. Have you ever noticed that? That in the Gospels, Jesus is constantly talking about Himself. You know, it's said that in the world there are two types of people. There are here I am kind of people, and there are there you are kind of people. You've probably met both kinds. You probably definitely would recognize the here I am kind of people. They're the people that you meet at a party, you're talking for a few minutes, and they say to you, well, that's enough about me. What do you think about me? And those are the people we tend to gravitate away from. But here comes Jesus, and Jesus is constantly talking about Himself, referring to Himself, drawing attention to Himself. In fact, the self-centeredness of His teaching was one of the things that immediately set Him apart from all the other religious teachers, all the philosophers of His day, because they tended to be self-effacing. They would, the rabbis of Jesus' day would, would, would point people away from themselves. They'd say, well, well, you know, there's the truth as I understand it. That's the way. You should follow that. And then here comes Jesus, and Jesus says, you know this way that I'm inviting you onto? this way that leads to life, I'm that way. And you know this truth that I want you to build your life upon and do it? I'm that truth. And you know this life that I'm inviting you into? I'm that life. Jesus says the first reason you should do what He says is because He's the way, and He's the truth and the life. He's the, he's the Son of the living God. He's the promised King from, from, as the Messiah. He's the Lord of life. Jesus calls us, therefore, to submit to His teaching because of who He is. But that's not the only reason, because secondly, it's not only the who He is, but it's the why of His teaching. You know, it's possible for authority to possess the sheer power to coerce obedience, isn't it? But Jesus doesn't want to coerce obedience from us to His authoritative teaching. He wants you to choose to follow the breadth and the depth 
of this teaching. He wants you to desire it, which is why in all of Jesus' teaching, indeed in his entire life, there is this kindness, there is this grace, there is this benevolence connected to his authority because his mission is to exercise his authority on our behalf for us. Jesus was a here-I-am person because he's a there-you-are person. The reason Jesus would keep talking about himself, referring to himself, is because his goal is to get you and me onto that way that leads to life, and he knows it's only through him that that can happen. So let me conclude by giving you one example of how Jesus taught that, and it has to do one more time with this gate that he mentions in verses 13 and 14. Let me read it one more time. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I wonder if you've ever looked at those verses and asked yourself, where is the gate located in this picture? It's interesting that for both the road that leads to life and the road that leads to destruction, your entrance through the gate precedes your going on the road. You know, other philosophies, other religions will tell you this life is all about just trying your hardest, doing your best, keeping your nose clean, doing the rules. And if you do that, you may qualify to get through the gate that's at the end of the journey. First the road, and then if you're good enough on the road, you can enter through the gate. And Jesus says, no, it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. Jesus says, my way involves first entering through the gate and then following the road beyond that gate that leads to life. So what then specifically is this gate that you have to enter first before embarking on the way of life? Well, Jesus told us. John chapter 10, verse 9, John quotes Jesus as saying, I am the gate. I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in, and they will go out, and they will find pasture. Jesus says, this gate that you need to go through that leads to life, it's me. The way that takes you into spacious, verdant pastures, the way is only accessible through the gate called Jesus. And it begins, therefore, he says, by entering through him into this salvation. And that takes a certain posture of the heart, doesn't it? It takes a humility to recognize that the gate is narrow and that you and I don't have the authority to go through that gate based on our own reputation or our own record, that the only way to enter through it is to trust in this Jesus and all that he has done for us. But you see, the good news is that Jesus not only taught authoritatively, he lived authoritatively. He acted with supreme authority, ultimately defeating our greatest enemies of sin and death through his death on the cross, so that everyone who enters through Jesus the gate will be brought onto this way of life that leads to life. And it's on this way of life that you and I discover the beautiful breadth to Jesus' teaching and the humbling heart-probing depth to his teaching. But in discovering those things, we realize that this is indeed the truth that leads to life. In the experience of entering into this life through Jesus and discovering the spaciousness of this life through his teaching, that you come to realize that 
yes, indeed, this Jesus is the one whose way leads to life. That this Jesus indeed is the watertight person against whom, in the end, there can be no argument. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus into this world to teach and also to be the subject of his teaching because we need him. We need him as our way, our truth, our life. We need him as our savior. We need to enter into life through him, the one who is the gate. Help us as we enter through him to then find that life that is described so broadly and so deeply in all of his teaching. And may we find life in Jesus because of who he is. We pray in his name. Thank you.